end of our Sermon on the Mount. We've reached the end of the Sermon on the Mount. About two more weeks and we're going to be completed with this. But it has been a real time, I'll just say this for me, of revival in my own life. Where Jesus has, and the Holy Spirit has, and the Word of God has spurred me on to greater holiness. Not guilt about my sin. I know that there is no condemnation. I am in Christ. And those who have Christ, there is no more condemnation. But that doesn't mean that we don't have work to do, believers. And this morning is really about that. It is about entering through the narrow gate. Yes, the entrance is only part of the task. But it is about walking the hard and narrow path. In verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. Some of your Bibles, it may just say the way is narrow, but in the ESV it adds the way is hard because the word there, tethelemene, tethelemene, means a narrow confined road that is a source of trouble or difficulty to those using it. So if you have just narrow in your, your Bible translation, it means narrow and it means hard. As I described it to my Sunday school class Narrow is always hard. I've been going to hospitals, and if you ever go to hospitals and you have to park your, your car in one of those narrow parking spaces, it's always narrow, and you got to get out of your car, and you got to scoot by, and you're wishing you didn't eat that extra fatty donut in the morning, and you're sliding by, and your back's getting all the dirt because you hadn't washed your car in 10 years, and you're going to have dirt all over your back, and you're going to get out, and you're going to be angry because narrow is always hard. When your pants are narrow, your day is crummy. That's what the first thing you do when you get home is you put on wide pants. And you feel good about it because you don't want narrow pants. You go to work, you got narrow pants. Get me 100 copies of these. You're mad. Just, just unbutton that button and get some width there. You'll be a much nicer person. But the word narrow means hard there. It means a hard The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Father, we know you're the author of our salvation. Your word tells us that for those of us who can call out upon the name of Jesus, it is only by your quickening of the Holy Spirit that we can even say Jesus is Lord. And so we praise you for our salvation today. But we also know, Lord God, that you have not called us to mediocrity, but that you have called us to walk the narrow path that leads to salvation. And that way is hard. It is not easy. Lord, grant us the ability to walk the narrow path by your Spirit. 
We know that you will grant us that because your word tells us that those whom you foreknew, you predestined, and those whom you predestined, you called, and those whom you called, you justified, and those whom you justified, you glorified, so that salvation from the first to the last is of you, it is not of ourselves. But Lord, we work and walk by the Spirit's help, the narrow path. Holy Spirit, grant us the ability to walk the narrow and hard path that leads to eternal life. Amen. I want to talk first about this passage, and I want to take some time to explain it. And then I want to talk about the application of the passage. So let's go. Let's look at this. The first thing I want us to look at is the the word others, and I want to talk about the, the scope of the word others. The word others means everyone who is not you. Everyone who is not you. It means the Muslim, because he's not you. It means the woman, because she's not you. It means the person of the race you think might be inferior, because that person's not you. It means everyone who's not you. And so I want to talk about what this means, the word others, and the scope of the word others. It means, first and foremost, our brothers. Look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18, or verse 17. Let's start with that one. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not hate your brother. For believers, that starts with this. We don't hate other Christians. Christians don't hate other Christians. And not only do they not not hate them, but they love them. So verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Jesus tells us, do unto others, then do unto your brother as you would have him do unto you. But not only should we not only not hate our brothers, but do unto our brothers as we would have them do unto us. Christians are to also love their neighbors. Verse 17b, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. So not only are we to love our brothers, but we're also to love our neighbor. Our neighbor is anyone in proximity to us. It may not be a brother. It may not be a fellow Christian. And it doesn't necessarily mean the person next door to you, though it doesn't mean anything less than that. It means people who are your neighbors. Perhaps your workmates. College mates. Classmates. Facebook friends. It means neighbors. But the scope of others also means strangers. Just flip one page over to Leviticus 19.33. It says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat him, that is the stranger, who sojourns with you as the native among you. So you are to treat strangers as the natives among you. In other words, you're to treat strangers and neighbors like brothers. 
You're not to be just kind to Christians, but you're to be kind to non-Christians. You're to be kind of people of other faiths and people of other beliefs and even atheists. You're to be kind to everyone. You're to love them and to treat them as a native. And you shall love him as yourself. We've heard that word before. So the golden rule is another way of saying Jesus' main teaching, not only to do unto others, but to love others. Doing unto others as we would have done unto us is to love others as ourselves. You are to love the stranger as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so before we move on to the fourth point, which is to love even our enemies, all of our love for others, brothers, neighbors, strangers, and enemies, all are part of others. We are to love them because God loved us when we were strangers. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of grace. It is a gift. And he does not look into the future and say, I love this race, or I love this sexuality, or I love this gender more than other races or sexualities or genders or religions. I love those people because I'm going to love them. Because it's my prerogative to love them. We are to love them because we too were once strangers. In the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God, he says. Read through the way that the Hebrews treated the God who loved them. They in no way earned his love. And neither did you. Lastly, we learned several weeks ago that we are to also love our enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43 and 48. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So yes, you love your brother. You love your fellow Christian. You love your neighbor. You love your strangers. I I usually ask my students when I taught this verse, I would say, Can you love someone you've never met? And 100% of the time I get this answer, No. You can't love somebody you've never met. Because you have to like them first before you love them. Everyone knows that. We've all watched the sitcoms. It's always the the pinnacle of of the love relationship and the love story. When Rachel tells Ross or Ross tells Rachel she loves him, now it's official. Before she just liked him. But that's not love. Not the way God intends it. Yes, you can love people you've never met. How do you do it? You treat them the way you want to be treated, and you treat them the way God treated you while you were strangers with a selfless, sacrificial love. So it also includes our enemies. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I love that because it connects with Leviticus 19.33. God loved us as strangers, but not only does he love us as strangers, he loves us as enemies. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? They do the same. 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect means complete. And that means that our love for others is everyone who is not you. Got it? Everyone. Think about the person in your life, about how broad that is. The racist, the abuser, the drug addict, the cripple, the jerk, the nice person, the poor, the wealthy. Everyone who is not you is others. Do unto others as you would have them do for you. That is the scope in which you're dealing. He says here, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. The righteousness that Jesus has been calling us to obtain is a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Those are the people who keep the law very strictly. And it is a life that is lived in obedience to the law of the Spirit. From our heart to our hands, true disciples of Christ are committed to walking the narrow path of doing to others what they wish others would do for them. But notice that Jesus does not guarantee that by doing good to others, that others will do good to you in return. Okay, this is not the law of karma. I want to purge that from your mind this morning. Jesus is not just teaching another version of karma. He's not saying if you do good to others, good will come back in return. Right? That's the law of karma. So then what's the motivation according to the law of karma? Me. My reward. If I do good to others, then good's going to come back to me. So I'll, I'll endure a little, little pain and suffering here because I know I'm going to give a little bit more money because I know I'm going to get some in return. No, that's not what Jesus is teaching. This is not... Another version of the law of karma. But rather the law of Christ. And that is a selfless giving of oneself for others despite their reciprocity. We don't give to get. You don't tithe to get. You don't give to get. You don't love to get. You do because your heavenly Father has done, and you are to be perfect as He is perfect. So it's not about what you get. It's not about what you get. This isn't karma. Well, many other religious teachers taught some form of the golden rule, though in the negative and only Jesus in the positive form. Leon Morris notes that this is because Jesus expects his people to be about the business of doing good, regardless of what they get. You don't have to wait, wife, for your husband to love you the way Christ loved the church, to submit to him as unto the Lord. Husband, you don't have to wait for your wife to submit to you as unto the Lord, to love her the way Christ loved the church. You are expected to do, period, despite reciprocity. 
We hear this all the time. Well, I'll respect those who respect me. No, that's not the law of Christ. You will love those who are your brothers, who are your neighbors, who are strangers, who are your enemies. For God loved you while you were strangers and while you were his enemies. That's it. John Stott says the conclusion then is this. If we put ourselves sensitively into the place of the other person and wish for him what we would wish for ourselves, we would never mean, we would never be mean. We would always be generous, never be harsh, always understanding, never cruel, always kind. If we really treated people the way we wanted to be treated, we would always be generous. We would never be harsh. We would always be understanding. We would never be cruel. We would always be kind. Because we don't want people to treat us like that. And we become indignant when they do. And that's human nature. It is, if you will, a defense against the very dignity God has given to us as being his image bearers. We are defending our right to be God's image bearer and how dare someone be harsh with us or be greedy with us or not understand our words or be cruel or be kind, unkind to us. So we are to be this way then to them. For this, says Jesus, is the law and the prophets. What does that mean? The word for there introduces an explanation of something. And in particular, it's going to introduce this explanation of why we should be kind to each other. In this case, Jesus is explaining how a person can live by the word of God. Jews were and are a people of the book. And that book was and is the law and the prophets That is another word for Old Testament. So when you're reading throughout your Bible this year and you see in the New Testament the phrase, the law and the prophets, notice that they are capitalized because they describe the Old Testament. They couldn't go down to Lifeway and get a book like this and they open it up and read it. They didn't have books at that time. They had scrolls. This is a modern invention. They didn't all walk around with their ESV study Bible. Some have estimated that the scroll of Luke would be 36 yards, made of animal skin. They kept it at the temple. And they learned it. And so the law and the prophets was the entire Old Testament. And Jesus says, if you will do unto others as you want them to do unto you, When you do that and you behave like this, you are living by the word of God. That's what he's teaching. Leon Morris says it like this. He says, the person who consistently lives according to the golden rule is keeping all the regulations in scripture, directing one's conduct toward other people. So Jesus says, listen. You want to live by the word of God, love others the way you want to be loved. Treat others the way you want to be treated. He says then, then enter by the narrow gate. And entering by the narrow gate means two things. 
Number one, because we are entering, it means to become a disciple of Jesus. To enter by the narrow gate is to become a disciple of Jesus. You imagine when you go to a theme park and you have to enter into a gate. You don't enter into the gate and then sit there on the wall. No, you enter that gate, you're in, and you get to ride every ride that's there. You're going to wait in line for a little while. But you get to ride everything. You're in. But you don't stop. You walk and you explore. So when you enter in the narrow gate here, Jesus is speaking about your salvation in Christ. And too many of us have let our our baptism and our salvation be the beginning and the end of our salvation. We got saved, we got baptized, and we haven't been in church in years. And when church becomes, when the Bible becomes... When the Lord's Supper becomes, when prayer becomes consistent with our schedule, then we'll do it. Because we're saved and we're good. But Jesus says, enter by this gate. Enter in. It is the beginning. But the narrow gate is also Jesus himself. Our access to the Father is through Christ alone, Ephesians 2.18. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, John 14.6. In John 10.9, Jesus says, If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The narrow gate in our passage this morning that follows from the golden rule, is entering through Jesus. There's no other gate that you get to enter to in order to become a saved person. Whatever name you want to put on that gate. He says here about other gates. He says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. That gate is so wide that leads to destruction and it has a wide path. Because there are all sorts of gates one could enter through. It's called your religious studies department. And all religions are treated the same. Religious pluralism. Some will enter through the gate of atheism. Others the gate of secular humanism. Still others, the gate of postmodernism, or the gate of Marxism, or the gate of Islam, or the gate of New Age, or the gate of democratic politics, or the gate of republican politics, or the gate of sexual exploration, or the gate of career, and on and on we could go because this gate is so, so very broad. There are very many gates you could enter into to travel that wide and broad path that leads right down to destruction. We used to have in our old apartment a place where you could throw trash down. And people started throwing it in there and it got stuck so they had to widen it. So that you could get that trash down. Because nobody wants trash to pile up 
So that broad entrance is to get the trash quickly down to the destruction. That fast living ends fast, doesn't it? This gate is broad. Those who enter life through these gates are many. Of the some 7 billion people that inhabit this world, only 31% are Christian. And if that statistic were a real indication of bona fide Christians in the world, which I don't believe it is, that would still mean that over two-thirds of the world's population would not be Christian. Of course, we know that many times those statistics are broad in their criteria of what it means to be Christian, so that the actual number of 31% is probably much, much less of who in this life really are Christian. That would mean, therefore, that the vast majority of the world has entered through the broad gate and is on the wide path that ultimately leads to destruction. But Jesus says the gate is narrow. And the gate is narrow precisely because Christ is God's exclusive Savior of the world. There is no other gate. I am the door, said Jesus in another passage. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. A pluralistic world hates this teaching. Go on your Facebook tonight, if you want to test this, go on your Facebook tonight and just throw out to everybody, Jesus is the only way to heaven. And watch the vitriol. You wouldn't dare put it out there because you know that that narrow gate is offensive. It is offensive. You wouldn't dare do it. You'd lose your friends. You'd be mocked and ridiculed. You'd be asked questions you couldn't answer. You'd be called narrow-minded. Think about the irony. Think about the compliment of being called Narrow-minded. Because the gate is narrow, you're narrow-minded. Because the way is narrow, you're narrow-minded. Don't wear that as an embarrassment. That is a badge of courage. You are narrow because the gate is narrow. There isn't another gate. And the world hates this. Even when they call you narrow-minded, they condemn themselves since they admit to knowing that the gospel is the narrow exclusivity of Christ. And they hate it. Jesus says the way, though, that leads to life and those who find it are few. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our sermon here. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Disciples of Christ, a.k.a. Christians, those people who have entered by the narrow gate, who have entered by the gate and call themselves Christians, are going to walk a hard path to the kingdom of heaven. I said, believers, Christians are going to walk a hard path that leads 
to life. Jesus has not lied to you. Oh, there are pastors who would lie to you so that they can get you to send them a hundred and they'll send you back a thousand. I called one one time. I said, do you take check or money order? He said, what do you do? He said, we'll take all kinds. I said, okay, now let me ask you before I do this, how are you going to send the money back? Do you send it back through check or money order? He said, what are you talking about? I said, you said if I give a hundred, I'm going to get back a thousand. This is a true story. I wish it wasn't. Actually, I do. I wish it was. I'm glad it was. See, I thought I was being mischievous, and God gave me an illustration for a sermon. Thank you, Lord. He said, well, we don't give money back. I said, but that's not what the guy said on television. He said, if I give God 100, I'm going to get back 1,000. You know what God gives you when you come to him? A cross! But that's not popular. We don't want that. I get it. I get it. Who wants a cross? That's a narrow way. There's nothing fun about that. And you're not going to get a lot of popularity with it. Not a lot of money with it. When Jesus finished his Beatitudes, he concluded with this. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That is, when they call you narrow-minded, when they call you religious bigot, when they call you names they can't even spell or pronounce, or define, by the way, Jesus says, you're blessed, man. Now, that doesn't mean go out and be a jerk. Because Jesus says, blessed are you when they do that on my account, not yours. I know too many Christians who are proud of being jerks. Jesus is the name of offense, not your bad behavior. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, he's saying you're like a prophet. You go in and you tell people the truth. You know, so many times we hear about, oh, my uncle is a prophet because he had a dream. You know what prophets do? They suffer the ignobility of going out and telling people the truth. Who wants to do that? Stand before kings and tell them of their sins. We can't even do it with our family members. Jesus says again in Matthew 21 through 35, and the tenants took his servants and they beat one and they killed another and stoned another. And in that very verse, he's talking about the prophets Then they'll eventually get to the sun. But in the verse before, he says, you're just like the prophets when you carry my name into the world. You're just like the prophets when you carry the word into the world. They're going to beat you. They're going to hate you. Don't look for future. This isn't how to be, this isn't how to train up a gypsy. It isn't how to train up someone who's a fortune teller. It's how to go and tell people the truth and suffer on account of that. What a narrow path indeed. But Jesus calls his disciples who walk through the narrow gate to walk then a narrow path. And that narrow path is one of self-denial and cross-bearing. 
What could be harder than denying our wants, our ways, our sinful pleasures, and following Jesus by bearing the same cross of suffering and not to receive anything in this life for it? Okay. That's what this passage is about. But before I give the application, I want to say what this passage is not about. This passage is not about works salvation. In other words, it's not about how to earn your salvation because you can't earn your salvation. The narrow gate is Christ, but walking the narrow path of being his disciples is a task filled with reviling, persecution, and all kinds of evil of false allegations, all levied against us simply for being justified by Christ. You're a Christian? All right, act like one. Demonstrate to the world that the regeneration, the new heart that you have, is a real heart. Because we know one thing about our heart, what's on the inside comes out on the outside. And if we really are a Christian, we're going to live this way. I didn't say it would be easy. But this is not about work salvation. Jesus is not talking about how to be saved by works. All right. So what is he talking about? Look with me, if you would, at Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. I'm going to read just the beginning part, explain the beginning part, and then we're going to talk about this famous parable. Luke 10, 25 through 37 begins with this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. They are in a setting, a synagogue setting, where people spoke and taught. The synagogue is similar to a church, but not identical. In those days, they did things more than just worship. They took care of Jewish concerns and Jewish needs. It was a place where court cases were heard. It was a place where you could bring before the lawyers and the scribes and the leaders of the council, any of your problems. And so a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, that is Jesus, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your soul and with your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. I want to make a couple points about this. Number one, the doers of the law, not the hearers of the law, are those who are righteous before God. The doers of the law, not the hearers of the law only, are those who are righteous before God. In Romans 2.13, Paul says this, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So that we deceive ourselves when we call ourselves Christians, or when we declare ourselves saved, and yet don't keep the Lord's commands. The ones 
who are justified are those who do the law. James 1.22 says this, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. As the English say, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The Bible says it like this, good trees bear good fruit. But make no mistake about it, pudding and fruit, Christians are doers of the law and not hearers only. We obey God's word, Christians. But keeping the law is a way of life. It is not a way to life. Keeping the law is a way of life. It is not a way to life. Luke 10.25, the lawyer stood up, put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a big question. Michael Wilcox says it like this. The lawyer was right in one thing. Eternal life is something to be inherited. And to receive inheritance, you have to be an heir. No amount of doing will make you into one. Keeping the law is a way of life. It is not a way to life. It is only when, by God's grace, we have become the right sort of people, His people, by new birth that we begin to do the right sort of things. I want to say that again because that has been the operating principle of this Sermon on the Mount. It is not go and earn God's favor. It is repent and receive His Son and live out this life by walking the narrow path. If the doers of the law are righteous before God... Why then is salvation not be or not by works? Romans 3:20 says this for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of the sin. But in our passage this morning in Matthew 7:12 through 14 he tells us that we fulfill the law and the prophets when we do good to others. And here the lawyer asks the question what must I do to inherit salvation? And the response is that they all agree on love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has not misspoken, and neither has he taught the lawyer falsely. The keepers of the law will indeed be justified. Listen, don't go to sleep at this point. Wake back up. The keepers of the law will be justified if they keep it. There's just one problem. There are no perfect keepers of the law. And that is what we must be. Perfect law keepers. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Lest you felt good about yourself before we began this series on the Sermon on the Mount. I've never murdered anyone. And I've never committed adultery. Yeah? 
Have you ever hated another person? Have you ever had lust in your heart? Have you ever coveted your neighbor's possessions? Well, yeah. Guilty! You say, but I thought he's... So why is Jesus telling us, well, we've got to keep the law if we're going to be perfect. We've got to keep the law if we're going to be saved. You know, those who keep the law will be righteous. Yes! But nobody keeps it. Yes! Both of those things are true. Well, then what else must we do? I'm glad you asked. Don't miss the irony here. The lawyer is set out to test Jesus, but he now will be tested. Look at verses 10, 29 through 37. But he, that is the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Ah, you know better now, don't you? You know who others means. Brothers, neighbors, strangers, enemies. Who is my neighbor? Here's how Jesus replies. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, so it's assumed that the man is a Jew. Jew is leaving Jerusalem, he's going down to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, a Jewish priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He saw him. He moved out of the way from helping his brother in need. So likewise, a Levite also of the priestly class, when he came to the place and saw him, he too passed on the other side. You can't pick holier people in all of Jewish society than the priest and the Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Just imagine for a second, we we don't touch anybody with blood. This man bound up his wounds, gave him of his oil, threw him on top of his own animal, and had to walk. Talk about going the extra mile. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. That's not much. Saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus asked this question, now which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, said the lawyer, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The point of Jesus' story culminates in the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You'll notice that the lawyer doesn't even use the word Samaritan, but rather the one, because his hate for Samaritans goes so deep that he can't even muster up the courage to use the word Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. 
John tells us Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Michael Wilcox says it would have been like saying this to a white colonist. A white colonist had fallen amongst thieves. And a black freedom fighter came to his aid. For us living today, it might sound something like this. A Christian fell among thieves and a homosexual. Or a Muslim. Or an atheist. Or whatever you want to put there that is your natural enemy. Acted neighborly. Jesus' point is that if we wish to accomplish eternal life, we must be doers of the law, not merely call ourselves Christians. How many people do we pass by and watch as the world who we condemn is charitable? Would that that would not be this church. But by our new life in Christ, we can uphold the law. Salvation will not be given to anyone who wishes to achieve it by living under the law. Jesus is not saying that the Samaritan was justified, but that the Samaritan acted neighborly. If Samaritans, if non-believers act this way, how much more must believers act in a holy way? Towards others. The lawyer was looking for salvation in his law keeping, in his Jewish identity. This is why Jesus uses the term Samaritan, a half breed heretic to the Jews, to illustrate his point. For all have sinned, lawyer and Samaritan. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The lawyer is assuming, I've got the law. I keep the law right. And then Jesus says, yeah, let me give you an illustration that ought to help you. And he uses Samaritan because he knows that the lawyer Hate Samaritans as all good Jews did at the time. So the answer, the lawyer's question, the way to inherit eternal life then is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the lawyer knows he would never be like that Samaritan. But what about law keeping? If salvation is by faith, do we still have to uphold the law? Do we still have to love God and love our neighbor? Do we still have to do to others, including the people we don't like, as we would have them do to us? The answer is, of course, yes. Because our righteousness obtained by faith is a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribe and the Pharisee and even the work of the Samaritan. For in Christ we are new creations. In the same chapter of Romans 3 where we saw Paul declare that the righteousness of God comes by faith, he concludes by answering this question, do we then overthrow the law? Do we then, in other words, not go out and love our neighbor because salvation is by faith? And he answers this way, no, by no means 
On the contrary, by faith we uphold the law. That's the proper balance. It is, therefore, the narrow gate and the narrow path and how they relate to one another. The gate is narrow because salvation is by faith in Christ alone, but the path is narrow because we live after the footsteps of our Savior. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. It is no accident that after Jesus presents His golden rule that He tells us the gate is narrow and the road is hard. You can imagine how hard it is to think about doing good to others when others means people, even people we don't know or like. How narrow is that road? That is narrow indeed. I'm not suggesting this morning that people who live by the law are saved because no one keeps the law. No person will inherit eternal life by keeping the law because they can't keep the law. I am not suggesting this morning that non-believers who keep the law are somehow saved. I am suggesting this morning only what Jesus is suggesting, and that is when you enter through the narrow gate of salvation in Christ alone, this exclusive entrance has an exclusive path that goes with it, a path that is hard and that leads to righteousness. You can't come into the narrow gate without walking the narrow path. It is a narrow gate. It is a narrow path, and neither the two shall be separated. Following Jesus is free, but it's not cheap. It cost Jesus his life. It will cost you every desire. It will cost you every other hope of salvation. It will probably cost you friends and family members. But that's not the end. The narrow gate and the narrow path lead to eternal life. Jesus says in John 10, 9, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I ask you this morning, do you want rest for your souls? Do you want a pasture, peace in knowing that there is no condemnation? Then walk through the narrow gate and inherit the salvation by Christ Jesus and His name alone. But know this before you enter, that through that gate lies difficulties. Christ warned us that we would be reviled and persecuted and men would utter all sorts of evil things against, against us on account of our faith in Him. That is, from the moment you walk through that gate, get ready to get hurled with insults. The path of the Christian is narrow. Jesus says few will find it. But as Peter said to Jesus when Jesus asked him, Would you abandon me to Peter? Would you not walk through this gate? And Jesus says, Peter says, Jesus, 
What other gate is there to walk to? For in you is found eternal life. Think of the movie or the story of the Lord of the Rings. Frodo and Sam have to go the hard path. But they know that if they get there, if they can get there and they can achieve what it is that they've tried to achieve, that there will be resolve at the end. Christian, in your times of persecution and reviling, know that this life is not all there is, but that at the other end of this narrow path is salvation and eternal life. Do you want eternal life this morning? Here is the answer. Enter by the narrow gate and walk the narrow path, for here lies the path to eternal life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is mighty and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces us. Lord, you knew my heart as I wrestled even while I read. Lord, how can we walk a narrow path but by your grace? Give us the grace to walk this narrow path. Lord, many, when they heard of the truth of the gospel, of what it meant to be a a Christian, Lord, they turned away, but I pray that that heart this morning that has heard this message will not turn away, but will enter through the narrow gate. Jesus, you are the gate. Let us receive you. Empower us to walk the narrow path. And Lord, we do so in the hope of salvation and eternal life. Not by works, but by salvation through the gate of Jesus. Empower us to walk the narrow path. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close? Would you grab your hymnals and turn to hymn 390, please? They're in front of you in the chair in the bottom. In front of you or behind you, they're underneath the seat. Hymn 390. We all ready? Let's try that again.
Let this be our prayer this week. Help us to learn to love one another. Bind us together that we can grow together to make this church what you would have it to be for the honor and glory of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.